Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria, coming to you live from New York. Today on the show, President Trump wants to reopen America. But can it be done? Well, a handful of European countries are already opening up. I will talk to the Chancellor of Austria, Sebastian Kurz, about how his country is managing this transition. Also, is President Trump right about China? But it could have been stopped in China before it started, and it wasn't, and the whole world is suffering because of it. He says Beijing is faking its data. He even speculated that the virus might have come from a Chinese lab. We'll have a debate about Trump, China, and COVID. And Madam Secretary, Madeleine Albright tells me why America can't hide behind oceans or a wall as it combats COVID. She says Donald Trump must work with the rest of the world. But first, here's my take. President Trump now tells us China is to blame for the havoc that the coronavirus is wrecking across the world. He's paused funding to the World Health Organization because he says it colluded with China in keeping the facts hidden. To evaluate these claims, just keep in mind one tweet from the president on January 24th. China has been working very hard to contain the coronavirus. The United States greatly appreciates their efforts and transparency. It will all work out well. In particular, on behalf of the American people, I want to thank President Xi. What did the world, including President Trump, know about the virus at that point? Well, one day earlier, on January 23rd, the World Health Organization warned all countries should be prepared for containment of the virus, including active surveillance, early detection, isolation and case management, contact tracing and prevention of onward spread, unquote. By this point, stories about the virus were all over the news. China had announced that the virus was being transmitted between humans and had begun locking down parts of Hubei province. As for the U.S. government, on January 18th, a week earlier, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar had briefed Trump on the dangers of the virus, according to The Washington Post. By January 24th, there were two confirmed cases of the disease in the U.S. And on January 27th, the Centers for Disease Control issued a level three warning to avoid non-essential travel to China. On January 29th, Trump tweeted, just received a briefing on the coronavirus in China from all our great agencies who are also working closely with China. That very day, one of Trump's most trusted aides, Peter Navarro, wrote a memo warning about a possible pandemic that could kill up to half a million Americans. Navarro noted that Chinese reports indicated that the virus was likely far more contagious than the flu, more like the bubonic plague or smallpox. 
The next day, January 30th, the WHO declared a global public health emergency. Just hours after that, this is what Trump said. Now we're working very strongly with China on the coronavirus. We think it's going to have a very good ending for us. So the question is, was Donald Trump telling the truth about China then, or is he telling the truth about it now? Let me be clear, with regard to COVID-19, China engaged in a cover-up, and the WHO did not push back enough, though both deny it. Local officials in Wuhan knew about the disease early, but chose to minimize fears about it and to punish doctors who spoke out. Beijing, for its part, kept a tight lid on information, refused help from the CDC, and gave the WHO limited access to Wuhan. Some health experts say it is likely that China is still giving us unreliable data about the numbers of infected and dead. And China's repressive regime has always controlled and manipulated information to serve its larger interests. But none of that changes the fact that Donald Trump was well aware of the potential dangers of the virus by late January at minimum and by mid-February at the latest. He made a judgment that the virus would not be a big problem for America, that it would go away in April with warm weather. He apparently worried that taking any strong actions against it would spook the stock market. It is those misjudgments that have significantly worsened the COVID-19 crisis in America. Now, to deflect blame from himself, President Trump has decided to bash China. This compounds one bad policy with another. Whatever China's mistakes, missteps, and deceptions, the fastest way to defeat this pandemic would be to build a broad international alliance, to pool resources, share information, and coordinate actions. Right now, Washington is doing the opposite, restricting trade in key supplies, allegedly outbidding other countries for shipments of PPE, and acting without even consulting with its closest allies. China, meanwhile, has tried to scrub its own record by floating a conspiracy theory that the U.S. military created the outbreak in Wuhan. It has also tried to burnish its image by doing undeniably good things, like lending its expertise to countries around the world and sending supplies to hard-hit places such as Iran, Italy, Spain, and the United States. During the Cold War, when the United States and the Soviet Union were mortal rivals, they still cooperated on a campaign to vaccinate the world and eradicate smallpox. Now we are in the middle of a global pandemic, and the U.S. and China, the world's two leading powers, are trading insults and one-upping each other in a childish blame game that will not save one human life anywhere. For more, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Let's talk more about Trump, China, and COVID. Joining me now is Nadia Shadlow, who wrote a piece for The Atlantic called Consider the Possibility that Trump is Right About China. She was a deputy national security advisor in the Trump White House. She is now a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. And Kishore Mabubani is a former diplomat, now a distinguished fellow at the National University of Singapore. He is the author of a new book, Has China Won?, um, Nadia, let me begin with you and ask you, um, lay out what you mean when you say that Trump is right about China. Uh, sure, Fareed. Hi, Kishore. 
Uh, Trump is absolutely right about China. Um, when he took office, he essentially uh, looked at what China had been doing over the past 15 years uh, that had been noticed, by the way, by bipartisan uh, experts, you know, both sides of the aisle in terms of its unfair trade practices, its uh, theft of intellectual property, its forced tech transfers, its complete lack of reciprocity vis-a-vis -vis the United States. All of these activities had been noticed, as I said, by previous administrations. But President Trump decided to approach the problem in a different way. He basically said constant engagement and constant cooperation without reciprocity wasn't working. So he changed his tactics. What he talked about vis-a-vis -vis China and what he has explained vis-a-vis -vis China is actually not really in dispute across, uh, as I said, a wide range of bipartisan experts. What's in dispute is his new tactics. In this, in this particular COVID situation, we have seen exactly what he has said. China's cover-up is costing us millions of lives, thousands of deaths. They have silenced and disappeared people in early December who were the first to call out the problem. They removed and destroyed evidence of the virus, bleaching wet stall markets, closing and shuttering labs, preventing people still, experts, from going to better understand the sources of the virus, the genomes of the virus. They denied human-to-human -human transmission for up to seven weeks from early December until January 20th. That's a long time, a long time when people are traveling. And speaking of traveling, they stopped internal, internal travel in China, but did not stop external travel which tells you a little bit about how they were thinking about the rest of the world and a little bit about how they were thinking about not caring about infecting people all over the world. And in fact, the first couple uh, to infect, um, to reach Italy, it's considered the first COVID case there, was a couple from Wuhan who left China around January 23rd, right before the, tr the international travel ban set in. So what President Trump actually has been talking about for the past three years, unfortunately, we're seeing proof of that today, uh, and unfortunately, because no one wants to see what's happening now in the world, the tragedy, economic, health, personal, on all levels. So there's no question he's right. Kishore, what, how would you respond to this, uh, to this notion, particularly the part that China did uh, mishandle, uh, at the very least, the, uh, the COVID situation? Well, you know, um, Right, I completely agree with you that the time will come when we have to investigate what happens. But right now, the whole world is in the middle of a major battle against this virus, which has proven to be extremely tricky and very difficult to control, very difficult to manage. So what we need to find out now is more about the virus. And the way to do it is to get all the scientists of the world to get together and talk to each other and not blame each other uh, at this point in time. But, but Kishore, I if, I may, if I may I interrupt you, uh, let me ask you, the point uh, that Nadia is making is that China has den denied access to the CDC. It denied access, so it limited the access to the WHO. And it did appear to do some things which uh, made it more difficult to investigate the, the virus. How, how can you learn more about it if the Chinese government is manipulating this information because it doesn't want to seem like it, uh, it, 
it fumbled or it mishandled this? There's a, there's a very simple answer to that question, Farid. Listen to what the scientists are saying. As you know, there was an open letter published in one of the most prestigious medical journals, Lancet, by various medical professionals saying that China had done a remarkable job in pushing back the virus. China had shared the genome of the virus as soon as they decoded it on January 12th. And frankly, on January 23rd, when the Chinese shut down an entire province, two days before Chinese New Year, you could not have given a louder signal to the world that something had gone fundamentally wrong and bad in China because it's like closing up America two days before Thanksgiving. So there were a lot of warnings out there. But I can also say, as a matter of fact, that many countries did not understand or anticipate uh, what was coming. And I believe that if you approach China without insulting them, without blaming them, I'm confident that they want to cooperate uh, with the rest of the world. Because China loses as much as all of us do. There are 330 million in America, uh, 1.4 billion people in uh, China, 6 billion in the rest of the world. We're all terrified uh, of this virus and all want to work together. So I think this is the moment to work together with China. And if you, if you listen to the scientists, they will tell you that they can cooperate with the scientists in China. And that's the reality. All right. Uh, we are going to come back and we're going to discuss one specific element of, of this, which has become controversial. The origins of the virus. Was it in a lab, a wet market? Does it matter when we come back? And we are back talking about Trump, China, COVID and the blame game with Nadia Shadlow, a former deputy national security advisor to President Trump and Kishore Mahbubani, a former top diplomat in Singapore. Uh, Nadia, let me ask you about this question of the origins of the virus. Uh, there, some of the allies of the president argued initially that this was uh, this came out of a bioweapons program uh, or implied this came out of a bioweapons program from a lab in Wuhan. Now the claim is that it may have accidentally or originated from that, uh, that lab. A bat may have infected a researcher. Um, what I don't understand is if it was accidental uh, and came out of a lab or accidental and came out of the wet market, how does it matter? The point is people are no longer claiming that China intentionally spread this virus around the world, which would seem odd since it has wrecked havoc in China as well. Isn't the issue Chinese intent? We, we, seem, we seem to have lost your audio. Um, if you can hear me, Nadia, um, can you just try again? I think we've, uh, we're having a little bit of difficulty here. Um, Kishore, let me ask you um, while we get that fixed. Um, one of the arguments people make about, about China is that um, people like you, frankly, coddle it too much. Uh, that you accommodate its weirdnesses, its dictatorial practices, its repressive uh, nature, that if the United States and the West were to get tougher on China, demand action, punish it for things that it does, uh, uh, such as the, uh, the deceptions over COVID, uh, there are people saying, take the, Olymp the Winter Olympics away. 
um, that this would force China to play by the rules more. What do you say to that? Well, I mean, I hope Nadia is listening. If she's listening, I would say that I agree with her opening point that a time had come for a reset in U.S.-China relations because China had just become so big and so strong. But the question is, how do you go about doing this reset? And here, I think the important thing to understand about China is that if the United States is 250 years old, the Chinese have a a civilization that's over 4,000 years old. And it seems rather strange to the rest of the world. I'm not not coddling China. I'm just saying that it's very difficult for a 250-year-old country with one quarter the population of China to try and convert a civilization that's been around for over 4,000 years with its own political culture, its own dynamic. And the Chinese have learned that when they are weak, the West steps all over them, as they did in the century of humiliation. So today, when the U.S. once again begins to insult China, the the Chinese say, here they go again. And paradoxically, Farid, all these insults towards China are strengthening the Chinese regime because the legitimacy of the regime in China rests on an ocean of emotion among the Chinese body politic. And that ocean of emotion says, you stepped on us when we were down. Now we are up, you're angry towards us. And guess what? It strengthens the regime dramatically. So what this points to is that what the United States needs to do is to do a complete reset, a reboot, and learn from Kissinger, learn from George Cannon, how to manage a new rising power, which is far greater than any other power has has, has been there before. And George Cannon gave very good advice. He said, cultivate friends, focus on domestic spiritual vitality, don't insult even the Soviet Union, and be humble. Guess what? All these pieces of advice that George Cannon gave on how to handle a rising Soviet Union in 1949 are completely ignored in 2020 when the United States has to deal with a far more formidable power than ever before. So I'm saying, no, no, I'm not saying you shouldn't reset your relations with with China. You have to reset them. Let let me have to establish a new new basis. But let's do it with a strategy. Let let me get uh, Nadia in here because I do want to hear, Nadia, what you say about these claims because they are quite widespread about the, the virus and its origins, because as I say, it seems to me that the, uh, the accusation or the implications often made uh, from some conservatives is that the Chinese uh, intentionally seeded this virus in the world, but if it accidentally came out of either a lab or a wet market, uh, why, why should they be held responsible for that? I mean, it was obviously a, a, a mistake or an un- unintended consequence. Right. Thanks, Fareed, and I'm sorry about that. I lost everyone. Um, First, I haven't heard uh, any U.S. government officials that I've been in contact with talk about deliberate engineering. Uh, What we are seeing is the very likely possibility that the level four lab in Wuhan, the Wuhan Virology Lab, did not have appropriate safety measures in that lab. In 2018, U.S. State Department officials had gone and expressed concerns and warnings about that. So there were two competing theories about 
uh, the Wuhan seafood market or the Wuhan Oh, sorry. I think we lost her again. Um, Kishore, do I still have you? Yes, So I just want to ask you very, very quickly. Um, how do you think uh, China is reacting uh, to all this? Because what I notice is China is itself. I mean, you talk about treating it with respect, but under Xi, China has become more nationalistic. Their foreign ministry spokesman now openly mocks the secretary of state openly talks about, this is the, the spokesman for the Chinese foreign ministry, says that the United States military has concocted this virus. So while, as, as, as I said, I, don't, I, I think that we are being somewhat unfair in implying that China deliberately seeded this virus, the Chinese foreign ministry is taking, a, you know, a, a, frankly, a completely ridiculous conspiracy theory and airing it as well. China surely has some I part to, to blame here as well. I, I completely agree with you that both sides should stop these insults, stop this blame game. And and by the way, some scientists have come out in both Lancet and in Nature to say this was clearly didn't come from a lab. That's very, very clear. And I just heard a lecture from a virology specialist, okay? And these virology specialists can actually trace where it comes from, how it travels, and, and scientists can do that. So if the politicians can step aside and not insult one another, I am confident the scientists can come together, American, Chinese, Chinese, uh, Chinese scientists, European scientists, Japanese scientists can come together and find a solution. All right. On that on that note of on that note of uh, a plea to listen to science, Kishore, I have to let you go. Um, Kishore Mabubani, Nadia Shaila, thank you so much. I'm sorry about the signals. This is the uh, life with uh, with this kind of television right now. Next on GPS, the Chancellor of Austria on how he is opening up his economy. Europe was the first part of the Western world to get hit hard by the coronavirus. It is now the first part of the Western world to begin to open up. So just as America tried to learn from Italy's difficult experience with the pandemic, surely we can learn from the European nations that are opening things up. Austria this week was one of the very first opening up small shops as a first small step. But everybody, both shopkeepers and customers, must be wearing masks. And there are rules limiting the number of people allowed in each store. Joining me now to explain is the Chancellor of Austria, Sebastian Kurtz. Pleasure to have you on, sir. Hello, good to hear you. So let's start with the beginning. You, you locked down March 16th, and it was a, a pretty uh, strong lockdown. Um, had it by at that point already gotten out of control? You have a lot of ski resorts in Austria. And was there, were you, were you um, late in, in locking down in the first place? We were one of the first countries in Europe which decided to have a complete lockdown. And I think it was extremely important that we were faster than others and that our reaction was tougher than in other countries. Um, in these days, we did not have high numbers. We only had a few thousand cases and we only had a few hundred people 
in the hospitals. But because of the exponential growth, it was necessary to have this lockdown. And it was good that we did it because now the situation in Austria is under control. We only have about 100 new infections every day. And we are extremely happy that we reacted so fast and that we reacted so tough. So as you've opened up, um, you have more people mingling with one another under controlled circumstances and with masks. But are you seeing the rise of cases? Are you seeing the rise of hospitalization? In these few days that you have opened up, has there been an increase in any of the COVID-related numbers? No, our numbers are still going down. The situation in the hospitals is very good. And also the absolute numbers of new infections is by about 100 a day, so very low. And we think that uh, our numbers could go down even more. What we try is to reopen very slowly and very carefully. We do it step by step, always two weeks in between. Um, So explain that. um, You've opened a few things now, as you say. Um, You're going to watch to see for two weeks and make sure that nothing goes up. And then you will open more things. What are the, give us a sense of what, what the sequence will be. Um, what will happen two weeks from now and then what will happen a month from now? Well, we started with the small shops on Monday and uh, on the 1st of May we will open all shops and at the mid of May our plan is to also open up restaurants. And uh, I think it is important that we always have two weeks in between, which gives us the opportunity to Um, watch the numbers very carefully and slow down our reopening plan if necessary and if necessary also pull the emergency break. Now, this is the question I think everyone is wondering. When you have restaurants and hotels, which I think are also going to open at, at the same time, what will you do to provide an assurance to people who are walking in that the, that the staff there is COVID-free? Well, the best thing you can do is to do as many tests as possible. That's the first point. And the second thing is, uh, of course, we still have restrictions like social distancing. And you mentioned it before, the people in the shops, but also in the future in the restaurants or somewhere else will have to wear masks. I think this can be quite helpful. And, of course, what is important is to have a good containment strategy so that if there are new infections, um, that uh, these people are isolated very quickly. Uh, explain the testing. So if, you're, if I go into a restaurant, will, will there, be, uh, some, uh, there will be some assurance that I, what, once a week, once every two weeks, everybody in the restaurant has been tested? Well, this would be perfect. It's not possible to do it at the moment. At the moment, we have about 10,000 tests a day, but we are working hard to um, increase our testing capacities and uh, probably in the future, this could be possible. And do you think, uh, give us a picture of the, you know, at least your sense of what the, the future of tourism, at least until a vaccine, will look like. Uh, people come to the airports, do you think, like in some Asian countries, will you be taking their temperatures? Um, will there be some kind of medical documentation required? Um, you know, will I have to get a, uh, a, some kind of health passport? Uh, what do you think? Yes, I think this is uh, the right way to deal with it. 
But if the situation is under control in a neighboring country like Germany, for example, I think you will not need documents in the future. It will be possible um, to travel freely like we had it in the past. Um, so I, I think that tourism can be possible, but of course there will be the need for restrictions, like um, a number of people maximum you can spend your evening with, or um, other restrictions uh, like social distancing in the restaurants um, where you uh, have uh, breakfast or dinner. And I think uh, another important point is that we have to be perfect in containment. We know from all the Asian countries that they are extremely successful in isolating people who are newly infected. And if you're good on that, you can keep your numbers low. And you are, in a sense, giving hope, it seems to me, to a lot of people that there is light at the end of this tunnel. Do you feel that way? Yes, definitely. Um, I think that uh, it will take months and the situation will stay difficult uh, but uh, we will have something like a new normal. And uh, I think what should be all our approach is as much freedom as possible and as many restrictions as needed. Chancellor Kurtz, pleasure to have you on. Thank you, and all the best for the U.S. as well. Thank you, sir. Next on GPS, many of the countries being hailed for their handling of the crisis seem to have one common element – female leaders. Is this a correlation or causation? I will talk to America's first female Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, about that and lots of other things when we come back. Many have said that this is the world's biggest crisis since World War II. Well, Madeleine Albright lived through that war in Europe as a child and later emigrated to America, where she would reach great heights, becoming the first female Secretary of State. I'm always honored to have Madeleine Albright back on the show today. She is the author of a new book, Hell and Other Destinations. Madeleine Albright, pleasure to have you on. Great to be with you, Fareed. Thank you. So first, I want to ask you about this uh, intriguing uh, thing. It's going around the Internet, uh, which is that... Uh, the countries that are being well-managed seem to have female uh, uh, leaders. I should point out, it is not a scientific study. In fact, there are many ma male leaders who have done well. Um, South Korea is uh, run by men and has done particularly well. But there does seem to be a bunching of women there. And I just thought I would get you to tell me, you know, do you think there's anything here? Or is this itself a kind of sexism where we're we're attributing to female leaders some particular, quote-unquote, female qualities. Well, I, I think that it may not be scientific, but I really do think that you can see a difference. Uh, for instance, the ones that have women leaders, uh, Germany and New Zealand and Finland and Iceland, Taiwan, that they have done very well in terms of trying to mitigate and deal with this. And I thought about it in Frank of what uh, the qualifications may be. First of all, I do think that women have the capability of multitasking, uh, thanks to the fact that all the things we have to do in terms of uh, at home and children and housekeeping and jobs. Uh, and it also gives us peripheral vision. I also think that women um, can be very decisive uh, and move forward. And then I think one of the things, and I've thought about it a little bit, is it hasn't been easy for women to get into high-level positions. And I think it means that we have a tendency to listen 
to be uh, cooperative, to try to figure out uh, how not to aggrandize ourselves, but to really look towards solving problems. So I think it's interesting. Also, women have less of a tendency to be authoritarian. In a previous book, Fascism, I describe authoritarianism. There are no women uh, that are practicing authoritarianism or fascism now. And I think it's because we know that it's better to have unity in our family than to pit one group against another. So I do think there's something in uh, this uh, uh, idea that there are women uh, that can run their countries. But I also believe there was something that it said in that uh, article was um, that uh, women, in fact, uh, need to be more like men. No, I don't think so. I think women need to work with men, but I think we are fine doing what we believe that uh, our talents bring in terms of supporting others. Um, you know, there is one piece of this that is scientifically proven, with, by which I mean the data shows overwhelmingly. Uh, women take health more seriously. And now I'm not just talking about women leaders, but uh, women go to get annual checkups at, I think, twice the rate of men. They take uh, the, the advice of doctors more, uh, more consistently. Man gets a negative test, you know, or get, gets bad cholesterol results, is more likely to ignore those results than, than a woman. What do you think that is about, the kind of greater focus on health care? I think what's interesting that you brought it up, because part of the problem has been that women have not taken care of their own health. And part of it has changed because women have been persuaded that being healthy themselves is a way to keep their families healthy and the environments in which they operate. And so they take the results seriously, follow directions. Uh, But I think it has been a matter of trying to persuade women to understand that if they're sick, then those around them will be sick. And there really is something about the tendency of caregiving in women and this multitasking. I feel really that that is a a differential. In your book, you talk about going through the war. Um, To what extent, I mean, that in some ways is a much more um, scary prospect, I suppose, particularly in London, where you had bombs going off everywhere. The Germans were bombing um, London almost through the entire war. Um, wh- what has it been like for you? I mean, this, you've had so many uh, periods of difficulty. What does this one, how does this one compare? Well, it only compares in the following way, which is that, and I, I was, of course, a little girl, but I remember, and I've heard a lot about it from my parents, was that they weren't in control of the bombs and how they could deal with them. The only thing they were in control of was their own behavior. Uh, And I keep that in mind because we're not in control. I'm not in terms of how this virus began. I am in control of my behavior. And by the way, Fareed, as you know, I'm an an extrovert. I'm trying to learn to be an introvert. I'm not doing very well. But I do think that what is very important is resiliency. And that's that resiliency, the desire to... uh, work together and to be an optimist. And so I do think those are the things that I learned from my parents from being in London during the Blitz, where we spent an awful lot of time uh, in the cellar of this apartment house. Uh, And finally, Madeline, what do you make of the way the United States government is reacting to this? Because I think it's fair to say that this is the first international crisis I can recall really since World War II, where 
the United States government has sort of abdicated its role as, a, as the leader. I mean, there are times where the United States has led and people have criticized it, has done the wrong thing, uh, certainly. But in this case, you don't get the sense the Trump administration really wants to play some role uh, internationally. It really is perfectly fine doing it. Is, is this really the new world, a world of America absent? I think if it's the new world, it's very dangerous. Because when we're AWOL, nothing happens. It doesn't mean that we have to dominate everything, but we do have to deal with partners to solve a problem. And the vi this virus certainly knows no borders. And it does require working with other countries' cooperation. And I'm very, very troubled about uh, the confusion that the Trump administration is sowing by changing its mind all the time uh, and not being part of an international approach to this. We haven't even seen the horrors that will come when this is when the numbers are reported out of the developing world where they don't have water to wash their hands or health systems. And the only way that we're going to solve this is through international cooperation. And so uh, I, I think we're muddling everything at the moment and we cannot be absent. Uh, America is essential. And I think the issues about the World Health Organization, for instance, um, it doesn't prove anything for us to pull out, not to do anything. We need to be at the table to help solve problems that are coming upon us in the 21st century. Uh, and it doesn't really take a genius to figure out the, the connections that are there. And so I'm, I'm sorry to see uh, America not play its rightful role. We are necessary. Uh, we need to be partners with the others to help solve this very, very difficult uh, virus uh, and the plague that it is creating in the world. And by the way, with the Chinese, what's happened is uh, President Trump and President Xi are pushing each other's hyper-nationalist buttons. We don't need that either. We need cooperation, not hyper-nationalism. On that important note, Madeleine Albright, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. And we will be back with some good news. And now for the last look. It seems that some of the world leaders are playing a never-ending blame game about the spread of this pandemic. But if you look closer, you will find signs of cooperation and global solidarity. In Iran, Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei peddled conspiracy theories accusing the U.S. of creating COVID-19. But the Tehran Freedom Tower was lit up with messages of love to Wuhan, Paris and, yes, New York. Meanwhile, the red and gold of the Chinese flag was projected onto temples in Egypt in recognition of China's work to overcome the virus. And in neutral Switzerland, an enormous American flag was projected onto the face of the Matterhorn as a small Swiss mountain village proclaimed support for the nation with the highest number of cases. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Want a daily dose of Fareed and his team? Now you can get it with Fareed's Global Briefing, the newsletter that gives you the best insight and analysis on global affairs. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed to sign up. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.